Bible reading is taken from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. <coughs> when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus, to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed Good morning and welcome to Church at Home my name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. If you're with us for the first time, we're delighted you've joined us and we do hope that our study this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you, uh, even as you continue in fellowship with a local church. Now, we're currently in a series in the Gospel of Mark, which is essentially a book of beginnings. 
And uh, as the lockdown continues and the virus wreaks havoc across the country, (coughs) it seems to me that people are crying out for a new beginning. Well, Mark's Gospel gives us that new beginning. And our passage this morning is one of the clearest examples. If today's talk uh, leaves you with questions, we'd love to help you with that. Can I invite you to visit our website, www.sbbc.org.za and on the home page there is a contact tab where you can leave your contact information and during the week someone on the team will get back in touch with you. But now as we begin, can I invite you to have your Bible open to Mark chapter 5 and the passage that Gillian has just read for us and (coughs) I'm going to ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth (coughs) and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And you'll remember that the final petition in what we call the Lord's Prayer is, Deliver us from the evil one. Uh, That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus considered that it was important for you and I to ask God to do this for us, to deliver us from the evil one. Now I think we can legitimately draw two conclusions from that. The first is that the devil actually exists. Otherwise, why would Jesus tell us to pray like that? And the second is that God can deliver us from him. And the rest of the Bible makes it plain that no one else can do that for us. Now I think it's important to keep those two truths together as we come to our passage this morning. Because many people, even sincere Christian people, struggle with Mark's account. Because of course we don't see demon possession very much today. And so they say, well, has this passage really got anything to say to me living in the 21st century? And they switch off. Now in case that is you, uh, let me make two comments up front to get our thinking straight. First, uh, although cases as extreme as this man in the story seem to be less common today, demon possession is still a reality in many parts of the world, especially of course in Africa. But not only in Africa. Uh, Witchcraft is surprisingly common in the West. And there's no question whatever uh, that witchcraft, uh, wherever it is practiced, unleashes phenomenal demonic power. Uh, Doreen Irvin was a practicing witch who was dramatically converted to Christ. Uh, Her autobiography is called From Witchcraft to Christ, and if you're interested, you can still get it on Amazon. And uh, in it, she says that as a witch... Uh, she had power to kill a bird in flight simply by pointing her finger at the bird. And she knew perfectly well where that destructive power came from. Now you and I might not encounter demon possession like that. But the far more important point is that the New Testament says that Satan rules in the lives of everyone who has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Perhaps the clearest statement on that is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, people can be very offended by this, 
But Paul is extremely clear that every unbeliever, however charming he or she may be, is spiritually dead, following the devil, facing God's wrath. Now, of course, the craftiness of Satan lies in the fact that in most cases, people don't actually realise that they are subject to any outside authority at all. They imagine they're completely independent and able to make free choices. But the Bible says that is quite wrong. Now, very often, though, it's only after we come to know Christ that we can look back and see what our lives were really like before. We thought we were free. In reality, we weren't. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest Christian thinkers and writers of the 20th century. He was greatly used by God for the spread of the gospel after the devastation of two world wars. But looking back, after he became a follower of Jesus Christ, he wrote that his life before his conversion had been, and I quote, a zoo of lusts, <coughs> a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. And then he ends by saying this, my name was Legion. Now think about that. One of the most useful Christians looks back at his life before he was converted and says that in terms of spiritual reality, he was no different from the man in Mark chapter 5. C.S. Lewis says, my name was Legion. Now that I think is a pretty big clue that our passage this morning is uh, not describing something remote and unusual that doesn't happen anymore. I think it's saying that Mark chapter 5 is actually a conversion story. And I want to show you this by dividing these 20 verses into three parts. Uh, the first seven or eight verses we're going to call the captive. And uh, then the next six or seven verses we're going to call the liberator. And then the last few verses we're going to call the missionary. Because you see in this passage the captive meets the liberator and becomes a missionary. So, we begin with the captive in verses 1 to 8. Because the man, of course, in chapter 5 is a captive. Now, we're told in verse 1 that he lives in a pagan territory in the region of the Gerasenes. And the geography is important. Because last week, when Jesus and his disciples crossed the lake, they actually crossed the border of Israel and left the promised land. Uh, they went to the region of the Gerasenes, and we know that that region was not Jewish because there's a herd of pigs which were expressly forbidden under Jewish law. <clears throat> and in verse 7, where the demon-possessed man cries out to Jesus, Son of the Most High God, he's actually using a Gentile phrase that was common in polytheistic religion, meaning, of course, religions that worship multiple gods. Now, you might be interested to know that this story has sometimes been dismissed by sceptics. They've said that the region of the Gerasenes is so far away from the sea and the cliffs that the pigs could never have run that distance. But in the providence of God in 1970, a bulldozer working on a road discovered an ancient sign 
which showed that the region did in fact go all the way down to the cliffs and to the sea. So just when you were thinking that your NIV Bible might be about to let you down, uh, God sends a bulldozer to set the record straight. Uh, The point is, you see, that Jesus here deliberately travels into Gentile territory. You remember that the Jewish religious establishment in Israel were plotting to kill him. And here we have, you see, the same pattern that we find throughout the New Testament. That when people reject the gospel, God takes it away from them and gives it to others. So Jesus leaves Jewish territory and heads into Gentile territory in order to save a man who is as far away from the people of God as it's possible to be. And Jesus is going to commission him for ministry. But as the story begins, uh, this is a very sad man in a very dark place. In verse 2 we read that as Jesus gets out of the boat on the shore, this man comes running towards him and he's got massive problems. The most serious, of course, is that he's demonised. These demons indwell him and they control him. I should say that when you become a Christian, you cannot become demonised because God's Holy Spirit lives in you and no other spirit can live in you at the same time. Of course, our flesh and our sin continues to rage, but that is not the same thing as being demonised. Now this man is living in the cemetery, he's isolated, he's unfit for the presence of God in every possible way. Nobody can control him, and uh, the original makes that point very emphatically. It says, not with a chain, no longer, no one was able to control him. He's completely beyond all human help. And as you read these verses with him being bound in chains, and with irons on his feet. I think you can imagine, can't you, the townspeople at their wits' end, coming out, holding him down, binding him with these chains, only to discover to their horror that with his remarkable strength he can tear them off and throw them away. And this man is so tortured that he's cutting himself, and during the night you could hear his terrifying screams coming from the tombs. So here's the picture, spiritually he's a mess, socially he's a mess, personally he's a mess, he's helpless, he's hopeless, he's desperate, and all the external solutions have failed. The chains are in a way a symbol of the attempts of the community to bring some kind of order and safety into his life, but they've all failed. Now when the man saw Jesus in verse 6, he has a double reaction, you'll notice that. He's delighted, he runs to Jesus, but he's also afraid. Those two things at the same time. We read that he ran to Jesus and he worshipped him, because the phrase that's translated, he fell at his feet, literally means to worship. And won't you please also notice that he knows who Jesus is. Uh, He calls him by name. I think that's significant because last Sunday we saw the disciples in the boat with Jesus uh, as he calmed the storm saying to one another who's this? Apparently the disciples didn't know but seven verses later a Gentile demonised man 
knows precisely who Jesus is. But there's another part of this man that's terrified, which is why he calls out in verse 7, don't torture me. So, so what's going on here? Well, the man himself wants help. Uh, the demons inside him don't want to be destroyed. And we know from the rest of scripture that the days of evil beings are numbered, but they don't want the final judgment to come now. And so there's this tremendous tension with the man running for help and the demons crying for protection. Now the question is, is this too far removed from our experience today to be relevant? Well, Andrew Browning is a Christian doctor who's built several hospitals in different countries across Africa. He trains doctors and nurses to heal women who've had trouble in childbirth. And uh, in their hospital in Tanzania on one occasion, they had a number of women lined up for treatment. And uh, in comes the local witch doctor, a woman, who terrifies these women and uh, tells them to have nothing whatever to do with these Christians or their church or the hospital. And so, of course, the women ran away. And uh, Dr. Browning says that it was sad because these women desperately needed treatment, but they were scared off by the witch doctor. So, the church got to praying, and uh, God, in his wisdom, gave this witch doctor a medical problem all of her own. She had to come to the hospital and join the queue. Uh, he says that she sat on the bed looking absolutely terrified. But in due time, she was healed, she was loved, she was gospeled, and her life was totally transformed. <clears throat> now that's Tanzania, but if you think that Cape Town is not caught up in that kind of spiritual battle, you need to think again. Let me remind you what Paul says about every unbeliever in Ephesians 2, the passage I mentioned at the beginning. And I do want you to reflect on this, because it's so very important. Paul says that every unbeliever is spiritually dead. They're following the ruler of disobedience, namely the devil, and they're facing the wrath of God. There are no witch doctors involved, uh, just the spiritual reality of being dead, not following Christ, but without even being aware of it, following the devil and heading eventually for the wrath of God. That means that the most sophisticated man or woman we know, who might be incredibly gifted and impressive, making a wonderful contribution to their home, their community or their business, that person nevertheless, according to the Bible, is either in the grip of Christ or in the grip of the devil. They're either in the light or in the darkness. They've either been reborn into eternal life or they're spiritually dead. They're either heading for heaven or they're heading for hell. And you can't be in the middle because there is no middle ground. Well, here in Mark 5, we're seeing this same spiritual battle, if you like, on the big screen. And it's here to remind us that there is this universal spiritual battle. And that the people that you and I live amongst and love and meet in our daily lives are caught up in this spiritual battle, whether they know it or not. They are either captive to the Lord Jesus or they are captive to the devil. 
So that's the captive. Now let's move on and see, secondly, the liberator in verses 9 to 13. And I want you to notice that Jesus frees this man with his word. Because in verse 8, Jesus says to the evil spirit, Come out. Now that's how Jesus does his work. There's no chanting, there's no spell, there's no magic. He just speaks because he does his work with his word. Please remember that back in chapter 4, Jesus told us that his word is like a seed that brings a harvest. It's unstoppable. That's how he calmed the storm by speaking. And that's how he sets this man free, just by speaking. And uh, the first thing that Jesus asks this man is his name in verse 9. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, some people have said that if you ask somebody their name uh, and they tell you, then you have a kind of power over them. But that can't possibly be right, because Jesus already has power over everything. We saw that last week. Now, Jesus asks the man his name because he's interested in him. This is personal. This is relationship. Jesus loves this man. And the man's reply comes back, my name is Legion. It is a strange, strange name. In uh, Roman times, a legion was between five and 6,000 soldiers. So out of the mouth of this man is coming a voice which says we are literally thousands. And then you've got this kind of tortured discussion going on in verses 9 to 12. Just notice this, where the man keeps switching between the singular and the plural. So in verse 9, he says, My name, singular, is Legion, for we are many, plural. <clears throat> and uh, then in verse 10, it says, He, singular, begged Jesus not to send them away, plural. And then in verse 12, the demons begged Jesus not to send him out of the area. And they, plural, the demons, are speaking out of his mouth, singular. So, the man and the demons are in tension. And although this, this sounds extremely strange to us, and I know it does, the demons are asking Jesus not to be destroyed ahead of time. Because scripture says in Revelation 20 that God's plan is to do away with the devil and all his angels at the return of Christ. So the devils, you, the, the demons you see, are saying, we don't want to be destroyed yet, it's not time. And because that fits in with the plan of God, Jesus agrees to their request. He gives them permission to enter the pigs, and as they enter the pigs, they drive the pigs off the cliff into the sea. Now what does that do? Well, it, it removes the demons from this world, it removes their influence from this world, but it keeps them for the final judgment. Now some people get very worried about the pigs and uh, I think we're meant to be shocked both by what happens to the pigs and also what this means for the pig farmers who've just been put out of business. But we're also meant to realise and this is most important that a man, a human being is worth infinitely more than pigs. Now that's important because our world is constantly telling us that we human beings are merely animals. And so we tend to forget that God has made men and women only in his image. 
not the animals. Uh, but because our world gets more excited, for example, about saving a whale that's stranded on the beach and forgets about hundreds or thousands of people being killed or being deceived, the Bible puts these things the right way round for us. So here, Jesus comes to this very dark place and by the time he leaves, there are two proofs that he is a wonderful, powerful king. Uh, exhibit A is the man himself. He's totally transformed. So look at verse 15 with me. Uh, he's seated, he's dressed, and he's sane. He's seated because he's no longer raging around. He's dressed because he's now sensible and, and sociable. And he's sane because his mind is right back to normal. Now that's because when Jesus takes over someone's life, he makes them normal. The influence of Jesus on people is to make them normal. I wonder if you knew that. And if we're Christians, you and I ought to be becoming more normal, not more weird. So that's exhibit A. Exhibit B is that 2,000 pigs are now missing. And these two pieces of evidence are really important because, you see, if someone in the village turned around in the future and said, look, uh, here's Fred. Uh, he used to be very weird and very unhappy, but he's much better now. And we fixed him by chaining him up and eventually he came to his senses. Well, that explanation won't wash because 2,000 pigs ran off a cliff. The problem was that the problem that Fred had was demonic. And Mark, writing this, knows perfectly well how to distinguish between sickness and demons. So, there are two very great pieces of evidence in this village. There's a man who's absolutely transformed and there is the absence of the pigs. And the question for you and me this morning is, do you think that the liberation of this man is miles away from what you need and from what I need. Do you think that by nature we're in a much better position than this man? Now, of course, this man was a social nightmare and, I don't know, you might be a social success. But the fact is that every single person needs a spiritual deliverance. First, we need to know that we need it, and then we need to know where to go to fix it. Now, of course, the way that Jesus frees the man in Mark 5 is with a word. It looks like it doesn't cost anything, because all Jesus had to say was, come out. But you see, this man is going to be fully saved, because Jesus fully paid. And the reason that this man is going to come out of the darkness is because Jesus went into the darkness. And the reason that this man is going to get new life is because Jesus gave up his life. And the reason that this man is going to be set free is because Jesus was chained, arrested and crucified. So you see, friends, a huge and wonderful price is paid for you and me to be liberated and we need to receive this liberation 
as a free gift. We don't deserve it, we can't earn it. But the one thing that we can do and must do is to receive what Jesus has done for us. Because at the cross, Jesus has done this wonderful, wonderful work of making it possible for anybody to be liberated. And that's why Ephesians chapter 2 says that because of his great love, God has made us alive. Or Colossians chapter 2, he had our guilty list nailed to the cross and took away the weapons of the evil powers. So friends, Legion in this story, actual history, Legion is what liberation looks like in very dramatic terms. And I wonder if this has happened to you. Has Jesus shown you that you were spiritually dead, following the devil, facing God's wrath? If he has, has he set you free? And are you following Jesus today? Are you putting Jesus first in your life? Well, if you are, and I hope you are, please notice lastly the commission that Jesus gives to this man in verses 14 to 20 because Jesus makes him into a missionary. Jesus changes this man, doesn't he, from being a hopeless case into an evangelist. Uh, You see in verse 14, the news spreads everywhere. Well, of course it did. I mean, think about it. The economy has just taken a massive hit and a well-known crazy man has been changed out of all recognition. Now the reaction is interesting, isn't it? There's a division. Look with me at verse 17. The people beg Jesus to leave. Now why are they doing that? Well obviously they don't appreciate or understand the rescue this man has received and they obviously don't like losing their pigs either. But notice especially at the end of verse 15 they are afraid. They are afraid of Jesus. So just like the disciples in chapter 4 and verse 41, uh, they had been afraid of the storm, so these people are afraid of Jesus. Now can you imagine the disciples sitting in the boat that day? Uh, Just remember that. The The storm suddenly stopped. No more waves, no more wind. Really calm. There they are, sitting together down one end of the boat. And there the disciples are, shaking and shivering with fear because of Jesus. And here the townspeople are afraid of Jesus and they ask him to leave. But if the people want Jesus to leave, the man himself begs Jesus to be allowed to follow him. And I think you would expect at this point that Jesus might turn around and say, well, this is terrific. Uh, A complete pagan has become a disciple. Of course, come follow me. But Jesus says, no, I've got a better plan. You're going to go home. You're going to go and live in your home area where people know what you were like before. And you're going to tell people what the Lord has done for you. Now notice this in the text very deliberately. Mark says that this man went away telling everybody, well, what did he tell them? Not what the Lord had done for him, but what Jesus had done for him. Because, of course, Jesus is the Lord. 
Now this is the first person Jesus ever commissioned to go and work as an evangelist. And here is Jesus knowing in his perfect wisdom what is going to be the absolute best thing for this particular region. And it is that this man will go home and speak of Christ. Now the question is, does he have anything to say? Well obviously he's not going to be sharing two ways to live, is he? And he's not going to be able to talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus yet. But he will be able to talk about the fact that he was in the dark and now he's in the light. That he was lost but now he's found. And the difference is entirely because of Jesus. Now friends, is his message better than ours? Does he have anything more wonderful to say than you or me? Well, perhaps he had a more dramatic conversion, but he hasn't had a more real conversion. And he hasn't had a more profound conversion. Because, my friend, if you move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you really have moved. So this week, if you find yourself thinking, well, look, my Christian faith is pretty ordinary, and my Christian life is pretty ordinary, and I don't really have very much to say to anybody, can I encourage you to come back to Mark chapter 5 and remind yourself about this? That if you have come to Jesus, then there was a time when you were a captive. You were in the dark. You were blind to the importance of Jesus. You were blind to the importance of eternal life. Matters of heaven and hell simply didn't register in your thinking. And God in his kindness has brought you to put your trust in Jesus. So you've been brought into the kingdom of light. You've been given eternal life. And it's because of the liberator Jesus and his death for you on the cross. And now he's asked you to be a missionary. Either right where you are or perhaps for some people overseas. He's asked you to be someone who by your life and conversation articulates that there has been a change. A very, very wonderful change. Because you've really benefited by coming to Jesus. I mean, think about it. It hasn't been a destruction, has it? It hasn't wrecked your life. It's not as though Jesus has ruined things for you. The truth is that he has wonderfully, wonderfully blessed you and you and I need to meditate on this we need to say to ourselves I was a captive but by God's kindness the liberator Jesus has set me free and made me a missionary it's actually the biggest transformation in the world it's bigger than getting married it's bigger than becoming a parent it's bigger than passing the exams To move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light is the greatest transformation in the universe. And although we might not think it's very much, the Bible says it's massive. So I hope that you'll keep on thinking about it and especially about ways that you can talk about it to other people as you live for Jesus this week. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are so great and gracious that you rescue people from darkness to light, from death to life, 
and you do it through the saving work of Christ. We pray you would impress upon us what we have received and we pray that these things would have good effects in us and through us as we live for you in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name.